We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organised chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com slash squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting a Intelligence Squared 2. That's Notion.com slash squared. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. On the show today, we welcome back food campaigner and restaurateur Henry Dimbleby. He's here to discuss his recent book, Ravenous How to Get Ourselves and Our Planet into Shape. Joining Henry in conversation is The Times columnist Alice Thompson. Let's join Alice and Henry now for more. So welcome to this Intelligence Squared debate with Henry Dimbleby, whose modest ambition is to save both our health and our planet. And he is co-founder of Leon, the director of the Sustainable Restaurant Association. He was the government's food czar at DEFRA, where he published this widely acclaimed national food strategy before quitting in frustration. And I have to say, I have read your strategies, as you know, there are very few government papers that I read back to back and keep by my bedside. Yours is one. Uh, You also co-authored the school food plan, and I have eaten your school food, um, which transforms what children eat at school. And your new book is Ravenous, How to Get Ourselves and Our Planet into Shape, which has the most fantastic picture of quite an edible donut, I think, Uh, although it could have been a bagel. Um, And it is also in the Sunday Times bestseller list only beaten by the air fryer cookbooks, which we are going to ignore. Although your next book, as you say, is going to be an air fryer book. <laughs> so you get two in the bestsellers list at once. But thank you very much for joining us. I really want to start by saying that food has just become so complicated for most of us. Um, and the FT said this weekend that no one knows what a healthy breakfast is anymore. That, you know, you've got all chickens have the avian flu, um, the eggs are costing a fortune, bacon is injected with sodium nitrate, then fruit juices contain all these sugars, nuts and muesli are flown from around the world. You know, do you have almond milk? Do you have oat milk? It's quite difficult. So what do you eat for breakfast, Henry? Well, I guess uh, this morning I had for breakfast some sourdough toast with sauerkraut on it, but my wife thinks it's, this is absolutely disgusting. But I, I normally have, actually, funny enough, uh, quite a continental breakfast. So I'll have tomatoes, chickpeas, coffee, whatever, whatever's in the fridge. Um, which is ridiculously on brand, but it also happens to be true. And do you ever have an egg McMuffin, or have you never had one of those? I so funnily enough, when I was a child, I used to like Burger King rather than McDonald's. 
And one of the reasons that we set up Leon was because both John and I used, he used to like McDonald's, I used to like Burger King. And uh, we remembered the excitement of those restaurants when we were kids. You Both of us used to, before term, go out to a, a movie and then go and have fast food. Um, but recently when I've had McDonald's, it is your, your palate kind of moves away from that. And it is, you know, you can eat the thing that you, about it, you can eat it with your gums, without your teeth. And the sweetness of the bread, I just find pretty unpalatable um, at this stage in life. And having written the National Food Strategy, do you really understand now why the British have such a peculiar attitude to food? We sort of lost the plot. We can't take it seriously. We don't pay enough for it. Why specifically is it America and Britain that seem to have done so badly? Well, you know, in, in, it's America and Britain, Germany a bit behind. I think that the story of the UK, there are kind of a few overlaying things. And if you want to understand how different the UK is from, say, France and Spain, 50%, 7% of the, of the food that we eat is highly processed. Mm. France and Spain, sorry, Italy and Spain, it's kind of in the low teens and France is slightly higher above that. So we do eat a very different diet. I think it, it it goes back to, first of all, uh, the Industrial Revolution. So when uh, we we basically moved our citizens into towns at the end of the 19th century, uh, France, by contrast, had about the same percentage of their population in towns uh, as we did at the end of the 19th century in, in the early 60s. So they stayed near where their food was grown for much longer. And at the same time, because we'd moved the labour out of the fields, we then imported much more of our own food. So we, by the beginning of the Second World War, only had uh, 30, only produced 30% of our own food. It's much more now. We produce over 60% of our own food. Um, so we dislocated our population from the countryside. And... From that point, there are all politicians, basically, from that point through the Boer War and the First World War, were very worried about how bad our diet is. Periodically, they've intervened because the poor were not able to eat good food. They were eating bread and tea uh, and other things. And then I think the second thing that happened is um, we, the, the, we created, because we were more American, we were more market-driven, we created this kind of super-powered uh, food industry that has really turned up the dial, and we could talk about this a bit later, in terms of how it markets and sells us food. And that didn't happen in the same way in, in Southern Europe. So I think there are a kind of combination of historical factors and then a culture that meant the government in, in other countries, in Japan and South Korea and Spain and France, the government have tried to do more to encourage a good food culture than we have in this country. In the last year, when inflation's gone up by you know 16% food inflation, has it made people eat more sensibly? Or do you think actually it's exacerbated the problem because people are just looking for very cheap ways of feeding their families? Well, we don't know. We don't know is the answer. So we don't, we haven't got good data on how diets have shifted. What we do know is that in a cost of living crisis, um, food is typically the the first thing to go. So when you have your fixed costs and your household, your 
your um, your rent or your mortgage and your heating bills and so forth. It, it is the reason there is what people call food poverty is is not because it's anything other than poverty, but it's because food is the thing that people can skip. And the the one piece of data that we have seen is that more houses, which is now measured by by the government, more houses, more people are skipping meals as a result of uh, of financial constraints. And I would ex- you would expect in that in that scenario to see what happens if you look at diets a- across the piece. Diets are pretty bad across the piece, but there is a skew to poor diet. Uh, in people who ha- who haven't got a lot of money, and that tends to be because, for example, uh, they uh, and there's good data on this. You know, if you haven't got a lot of money and you want to feed your family, you want to feed them something that you know that they will eat. You want to go for the blockbusters because you can't afford to feed your children, for example, healthily, and then if they don't like it, feed them something else. So. We know that the cost of living has increased the number of people skipping meals. We don't know uh, yet whether it's changed what they eat, but we would expect it to uh, to make diets slightly worse. What about the war in Ukraine? Because in some ways that may have helped and that we've had to start looking at our own food. So I know the government said let them eat turnips, but there is a sense where we might actually start eating a bit more healthily if we do look around locally for local produce rather than relying on food flying in. Yeah, I mean, the, the, I found the, the the whole debate about whether it is acceptable to ask people to eat more turnips incredibly frustrating. So there, there is, if you step right back, the reason that Ukraine is so important, it's because it has incredibly fertile soil and we have a population on the planet now that exists in areas where the soil in that area would be unable to feed the population of that country so for example Egypt uh, which imports a lot of wheat from Ukraine even if you farmed it incredibly intensively the land in Egypt would only be able to support half the population so less than half the population and that is because we've got very good at distributing and storing food. So that is a decision that we have made, maybe subconsciously as a, a as a race, that we will move food from productive areas to unproductive areas. Here in the UK, we are actually pretty um, uh, protected from that because we have pretty productive soil. We produce about 60% of our own food. If we had to, and the Department of Environment, Food and Rural Affairs did a study on this, we could quite quickly ramp up our own production to to feed the whole population from British soil if we ate less meat because it's inefficient. So what actually I think you're seeing at the moment, the, the real underlying thing, obviously wars are bad. And if you are Egypt, that is concerning. And there are things that we talk about that Egypt might be thinking about in the future in the book. But for us, I think the biggest worry is climate change. So um, the food system is by far the biggest cause of the destruction of nature. And after energy, it is the the second biggest cause of climate change. It emits 20 to 30% of greenhouse gases. And what we saw earlier this year in Morocco, which was a failure of a kind of weird freak weather event, uh, that is going to happen more often. Uh, And the way that we eat is actually imperiling the way we eat. So um, we shouldn't be talking about 
whether we can eat turnips in in whether it's okay to tell people to eat turnips in winter what we should be thinking about is how can we make our food system less environmentally destructive and it might not just be you know that that moroccan event was quite mild but if you look at say rice um the the biggest exporter of rice to the world is the mekong delta half of which will be underwater if sea levels rise a meter so for me um the big issue with food security is climate and biodiversity and that's what we should be focusing on not whether it's okay for a minister to tell people to eat turnips which is very funny uh you know it's a good debate but it's not particularly relevant The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code SQUARED, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code SQUARED to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. What I really like about your book is that how to get yourself and the planet into shape is actually the same way, isn't it? It's not, they're not actually pulling against each other. So the fact that we eat 57% of our food is all um, deeply uh, unnutritious and fast food um, is also the way that we are wrecking the planet. So what are we actually doing to our bodies when we're eating that kind of food? Because you write about it very well. How are we destroying them? Well, it's not entirely overlapped. So uh, I'm sure we might comment on this. So I do make the argument that the fact that so much meat is eaten in processed form that you could substitute uh, meat in processed products for other kinds of protein and you wouldn't improve our health, but you would massively improve the impact on the environment. Right. But in terms of our health, there is the the one of the oldest uh, or eight most ancient pieces of evolution in our body is the amygdala in the brain, which actually evolved in prehistoric marine worms. 
And this drives our most fundamental desires and appetite. And it is where appetite, where the hormones of appetite meet the brain and, and affect our behavior. And we talk in the book about how powerful this is, this urge. And we give the example of the Chilean rugby players in who are documented very well by Piers Paul Reed in his book Alive, uh, who crashed in the in, in the Andes and ran out of they survived amazingly, ran out of food. And the urge to eat was so strong that uh, they ended up eating their family and friends, first their flesh, which they cut from the bodies with the glass from the windows of the plane, uh, and then their organs, their, and then their lungs, and then their brains. So our appetites will make us do extraordinary things. And this processed food that we currently eat, that 57%, most of that is designed in such a way that it uh, is irresistible to that appetite. That appetite evolved to make us go to quite great lengths to seek out highly calorie-dense food. Uh, and when we eat that food, it fills us up less often and it, uh, less quickly, and we eat more of it. And companies spent more and more money uh, marketing that food and, and developing it we've eaten more and we've got sick. And that sickness, to answer your question, uh, there is, uh, a part of it is just overweight and the, 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 the weight that that puts, uh, the, the, the pressure that puts on your body and that can create cancers and diabetes, um, heart disease. But actually the quality of the food and the way in which it messes around, for example, with our insulin production means that in the States now, where 40% of people are uh, pre-diabetic, there are a significant number of what they call the skinny ill. So people who have diabetes without being overweight because of the way this very sugary, fatty food interacts with our, our bodies. And funny enough, those are the people, if you're diabetic and you're skinny, you're more likely to, to die of it than if you're overweight because, uh, because you don't you know, you don't spot that you're that you're sick. It's that two to one ratio that you talk about about breast milk, which is so true, yeah. isn't it? The idea yes, that yeah. it's just perfectly formulated for ice cream. Um, there's, yes, so there's, a, there's a two to one. There's a, there's a ratio of sugar to fat to salt, and and there are various different ones. In in breast milk, the ratio is uh, two two sugar, one fat, and that is particularly it's a bliss point, and it's. In ice cream, funny enough, it's also in crisps if you take the carbs to be the, the sugar, and it's in all sorts of foods. And actually, the, the work of, the, of Kevin Hall, who was the first person to prove in the States that this ultra-processed food was really bad for us, he has now identified specific ratios that really, of carbs to fat to salt that don't exist in unprocessed food. So there is something about this food that literally interacts with this, this uh, marine worm brain, this most fundamental part of our, of our kind of drive to live that, that is, that is causing, causing a lot of trouble and causing us harm. And it's not, but it's not just, you know, we talk in the book, it's not just us who are stuck in the junk food cycle. Those food companies... If they decided not to do that individually, the CEOs, they would just lose share to another food company or be fired. So it's it's a systemic problem. This commercial, this reaction between the commercial incentive of companies and and this ancient 
evolved appetite. And the problem is it's like an addiction really, isn't it? But unlike, say, cigarettes or alcohol or gambling, you you, you can't really live without it. So it's not like you can go cold turkey and just not eat anything at all. That's the problem, isn't it? You have to learn to live with it and to eat it and to eat sensibly. And what you come up with solutions, what kind of solutions can the government come up with? I mean, they obviously haven't come up with enough, but stuff like portion control is really important. How do you get companies to, to produce the right portion controls? Well, it's, it, it, it's very difficult. And, you know, if you look, for example, the new wave of, uh, 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 of attack on this appetite is the delivery companies. And it is very hard for them to give us portions that would be reasonable. And there's good evidence that we could we overeat massively when we eat delivered food. Uh, it's very hard for them to give us portions that would be reasonable because uh, we would complain that they weren't big enough. But basically, there are, there are two ways that you can tackle the health problem. If the the feedback loop that's going wrong is the feedback between our appetite and the commercial incentives of companies, you can tackle, you can change either of those. So to change the commercial incentives of companies, there are all sorts of things you can do. You can restrict advertising, you can put into place reformulation taxes, you can restrict what can be marketed to children, just to just to improve the environment a bit better. And uh, we argue in, in the book that that is what you should do, but we also recognize that uh, what I think is actually more likely to happen is that government will think that stuff's a bit tricky, that's politically difficult, I don't want a nanny state, etc., etc., and they will focus on the appetite. And there are very good drugs now, or very effective drugs, at restricting our appetite. Uh, semaglutide is the name of the drug. Its brand name is Wagovia and Azempic. It's suddenly been in the press a lot over the last few weeks. And basically, you, you inject yourself once a week and you feel less hungry. And if you are a someone who has struggled with weight all of your life, you have a BMI of over 30, you are very unwell, I think that those, you know, you should go to your GP, you should look at that option. But I, what I think is going to happen is that the government will, whichever government will think actually fixing the underlying problem is too hard and 20 million uh, people will end up permanently on these drugs. Uh, there's been reports in the paper recently that Steve Barclay, our current health secretary, has already asked for a paper about how much it would cost to uh, to give this drug to 12 million people and there are there are problems with that there are two two problems i have with that one is when you give drugs to that many people the side effects can uh can scare people you have very slow level of side effects as we have with the vaccine which make the drug scary to people which means that people who might actually benefit from it don't want to take it but the other one is more fundamental which is are the the hormones of appetite do because they evolved have all sorts of other roles in in our body they 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 are used to balance all sorts of different uh biological processes in our body and i i think there is a fundamental concern about using a drug that focuses on a certain hormone glp1 in this case and basically uh 
makes you artificially release more of it. Uh, dealing with a complex system in that way, I think you inevitably will cause uh, unintended side effects down the line. I think it's a really, really dangerous way to solve the problem of a bad food system. It's also depressing, isn't it, that sense that you're not going to enjoy food anymore. So the people who are on it don't actually really enjoy eating anymore. So you lose that sense of eating for pleasure and enjoyment as well as, you know, to, to get your nutrients. And I think that, that that in the long term is rather sad because I think it's one of the aspects that people do enjoy. You really love food. You know, we love cooking. That sense that you're being forced to eat less because you can't really be able to, you can't control yourself in any way. Yeah, yes. I mean, I'd be quite careful not to impose my values, but definitely, you know, uh, instinctively, I think, God, that's not a world that I would like to live in. Um, And in fact, in the, you mentioned uh, up front, I'd done work for the government before on school food. And one of the things I did was help write the curriculum. And I was really pleased that we managed to sneak in there that, the f- lessons should try and instill a love of cooking, which is one of the great outlets of human creativity into the curriculum. But I, I, trying to kind of fight against that, though, those values of mine, you know, I spoke to a few people who were on semaglutide and one of whom we quote in the book who, um, who said she doesn't enjoy food as much, but her whole life had been a struggle with food and mm. she just feels released from that struggle i should then rather rudely said you should try it um, <laughs> but but i but you know you have I, I do think there are people if, if you look at the bell curve of society our appetites are very different and so if you are a naturally thin person you have to imagine how you feel at the end of a day if by mistake you didn't eat for the day mm. and realize that other people feel that when they've eaten you know uh relatively recently. So we all have different appetites. And I do think if someone has a particularly strong appetite, if they have a a genetic propensity to obesity is somewhere between 40 and 70%. For those people, I can see what would be a bleak existence for me might seem like a blessed relief. So I did quite a lot of research on the food in Japan, which is also in your book, where they they did have quite an overweight nation after the Second World War when they were introduced to American food and Twinkies and, you know, chips and burgers. And they did grow a bit like we have in the way that we now have. We've gone from 1% being obese in the 50s now to sort of 30%. And they did crack it by having very much a nanny state, but almost food rationing, that they went back to telling people what to eat. The children all had to eat the same things at food. Do you think we could ever get to that situation in Britain, whereas instead of taking drugs, actually what we do is say to people, this is how you need to eat? Yes, although I wouldn't put it quite like that. But I think we can change our food culture. So people say, well, why can't, you know, why, how can, can we get people eating, cooking from scratch? Can we get people eating better food? Can we change our culture? And go, people go, no, 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 is it possible? The genie's out of the bottle. That's never going to happen. But actually... It's happened here. Uh, We have created and changed our food culture. And as you say, it's happened in Japan. So Japan's been through, you know, we all think of the Japanese um, uh, food culture as being kind of God-given amazing food, and they have 4% of their population as a beast. They have changed their food culture twice. 
first of all, in the Meiji period, the Meiji Restoration, when they opened up to foreigners and they saw all these um, hulking Dutch traders who were the first people to trade with them because they were the only ones being pragmatic Dutch people. They were the only ones who would stand on the Bible to to sign deals. Uh, And the Chinese came in and they thought, my God, these people are so strong. We need to do something about it. So the, the emperor, first of all, decided that he would eat red meat and be public about it, which was taboo at the time. They got the army to, they created a whole new menu for the army, um, which included dishes that they stole from all around the world. Katsu curry, for example, was taken from a, a fried chicken dish with an Indian curry sauce that was served on British naval ships. And then they got those um, cooks in the uh, in the army and the navy to broadcast on radio cookery lessons for, for Japanese houses. And then after the war, they had a similar thing again. So they actually, they went from, again, being very starved. Uh, MacArthur came in. They, they, uh, they, as you said, the diet began to become quite American. But then they really turned up the dial on creating a Japanese food culture. So um, both subtly, so for example... Um, they had quite restrictive agricultural rules to try and maintain this new Japanese cultural diet. They have planning rules that uh, that meant that it was quite hard for fast food chains to set up there. But then they also had the Metabo law, which meant that still you get measured uh, by your company once a year, and if you are overweight, you you get you get uh, you know a, a bit of help from a dietitian and a bit of advice. So you can, I think, change food cultures. And I think will in this country, in the end, I think we will realize that we need to. We've done it quite recently. You know, we, we, when I was uh, a journalist in the 90s, um, I, I was, we'd just had the first Time Out Food Awards and we'd had the Eagle Gastro Pub had opened and Quaglino's had opened. And I was sent by the Telegraph to go and compare British food to French food. And I traveled, uh, you know, on the ferry then across to Paris. And I, and actually, except for about four restaurants in, in um, London, all the food was better in France. I repeated that journey the other day. And we are now, and I, I can, I will categorically defend this to anyone who wants to, to have an argument on it. We are now, we have a better, we have better restaurants than the French. The French have not improved since the 90s. They've sat on their laurels. And I really do think that that culture can permeate down, that we can find a food culture in the UK and that we can learn to cook from scratch. But in the meantime, you've still got this 57% of food that's processed. So I think there's kind of two transitions that need to happen. One is we need to make the processed stuff less, uh, less bad. And then the other is we need to focus on from the bottom up, creating a better culture of cooking and uh, uh, cooking from scratch and feeding our families and eating together, etc. And I don't think that that is nuts. I think cultures change all the time. And that's what's so difficult. Isn't it? I, mean, I, was, I did restaurant reviews at the Telegraph, I think, when you were there that, um, for 10 years. And the food did change dramatically. But what it didn't was the discussion around farming, actually. And now we've got a huge discussion going on about whether we want rewilding, whether we want to keep the big agri farms, we've got all the new trade deals going through. 
And there is a sense that we could actually have more regenerative farming, we could have more sustainable farming, and then we could teach people to eat with local produce and from these farms. And do you think there's any way we're getting closer to that now or not? I think the farming side is really exciting. So, you know, basically in the book, we we say the health problem is caused by this junk food cycle, this feedback loop that's going wrong between appetite and, and, and commercial incentives of companies. I think that is tricky to break. The reason that our farming has uh, is so destructive is that uh, what, what the economist Parthadas Gupta called the invisibility of nature, we don't measure nature in any of the systems that we use to, uh, to measure human success. So uh, you can't count nature in a wallet. It's not in the balance sheet of companies. It's not in the way we measure GDP. And in fact, Dasgupta points out that it's not just not there. We actually subsidize globally activities that destroy nature. Governments do to the tune of about $500 billion a year through subsidies to agriculture, to fishing, and to fossil fuels. So we have an opportunity. The one, the kind of one thing that that about Brexit that almost everyone agrees on is that we have, who knows about it, is that we have an opportunity to change that in the UK because we're coming out of the common agricultural policy. So we have an opportunity to pay people not to destroy nature, but to restore it, to give payments for public goods. Uh, And I think, uh, and currently the framework the government has is the right one. There are all sorts of ways that it could go wrong. And if you want, we can talk about how it needs to go right. But but fundamentally, we have an opportunity to show the world that this is possible. The only thing that is, or there are lots of things that are difficult about it, but the one thing already that has gone slightly wrong is trade deals because it, it makes no sense to incentivize our farmers to farm differently uh, and then allow imports of, of food that is grown to lower standards from abroad. Effectively, you're just moving the moving the problems to a, to a country where you can't see them and in the australian trade deal uh pro- probably the worst trade deal any country has ever done according to the australian press who were amazed by um how bad it was uh the, in that trade deal that did not protect our farmers now it might not matter with the australian trade deal because most of their food anyway for economic reasons goes to china and is not sold into this market but if we do similar trade deals with America and Brazil and so forth, uh, we could hobble our own attempt to show the world how it's possible to farm in a in a more nature-friendly fashion. And as a supporter of Brexit, are you frustrated that actually they could have used it as an opportunity? Do you feel that, because in a way they kept showing off about these trade deals, or what you wanted them to do was say, this is how we're going to reframe farming, our own farming, this is what we're going to do, and that you could have been they would have seen it maybe particularly as trust as restrictive, but it could have been a whole new era, couldn't it? Do you think it still can? Well, I think you had, I mean, interestingly, what happened was you had two completely different views in the Conservative Party about Brexit. I'm not a, I'm not a, a conservative. I'm not a, a, I'm not a member of any party. I've always been rather against joining things. Um, but you basically had a group of people who saw it as uh, regaining sovereignty and being able to choose our standards, which was one view of Brexit, which was probably shared by uh, a section of the Tory party and 
the left-wing Brexiteers who'd always been slightly suspicious of the European Union uh, and thought it was kind of big, big businesses way of trying to take over Britain. And then you had a a group of people who thought that Brexit was all about about more globalisation. So it was about, um, you know, it was about free trade deals, becoming Singapore on, you know, on the channel. And those two views were fundamentally opposed. And I'm not sure within the Conservative Party, it's not clear that uh, they have yet to uh, to decide which which one of those two positions they're going to take, which means that the farming transition is is at risk. Um, so There's some is. areas that we can we can still look at. Like I mean, very interesting about sheep and why we are too reliant on sheep um, who adopt the countryside, and also on cattle and how you change that. Because you could change that, that regardless of Brexit, that there is a different way of farming, isn't there? And the uplands very much rely on sheep farming. How do we change wean them off? And how does that reliant on us eating less meat as well? Well, it, it relies on the subsidies, paying different subsidies. So what we argue in the book is that effectively you're trying to solve an equation. So we, because of the Green Revolution, we produced a lot more food from less land uh, without the kind of the modern way of farming with the high-yielding crops, nitrogen fertilizer, and uh, new forms of irrigation. About 40% of people on this planet wouldn't, if you change it overnight, be fed. And so you're trying to say, okay, well, how do we produce enough food uh, while restoring nature and sequestering carbon. And you you can solve that equation, and you can solve that equation for a couple of reasons. First of all, there are large parts of our land that that don't produce many calories. Uh, So about 20% of our land produces about 3% of our calories. Uh, And secondly, um, there is quite a large overlap, particularly on the uplands, with places which are suitable for restoration of biodiversity and sequestering of carbon through restoring peat bogs, through tree planting or growing, um, where those two things overlap. So the, the vision that we paint for the future of the British countryside is one where you basically have, we call it the three compartment model. You have some wildland, you have some farmland that is that is intentionally farmed to lower yields, but with more nature on the farm, because there are whole ecosystems that are good at living on farms that are not so good at living in the wild. And then you have higher yielding, low uh, impact, uh, sorry, lower input farms. So you have a kind of range of different kinds of agricultural approach, approach to the land. And that can feed us. Um, We can, that we can, that's that equation, you can solve the equation using that if you waste less, if you waste less food, if you farm more productively, and if we eat less meat. Because 85% of the land that we use to feed ourselves is used to rear crops, to feed to animals or to graze animals. It is an incredibly wasteful way of producing food. And we say you should reduce about 30% of the meat we eat by 2030 to meet our biodiversity and climate goals. And you can do that because we're currently subsidizing effectively upland farmers 
to produce meat, if you change the subsidies and make it more attractive them to reduce the size of their herds, to farm beef which are less destructive or, diff- or, or rugged outdoor sheep, then you can make that come you can make that come about. You can make that transition by changing the incentives. But as you're seeing in the press at the moment, that takes enormous political skill because there is so much fear out there. And there's so much every little thing is seen as you know, the upland farmers think, oh, well, they're trying to destroy our livelihoods. And the the vegans, you know, think we need to remove all meat altogether and the, you know, etc. The the paleo people weigh in because they think that by saying we need a bit more diversity in the uplands, you're not going to allow them to eat their their steak. You know, so it becomes trying to there's a very narrow narrow landing strip politically. And so I think that transition is going to take uh, both detailed implementation and uh, a visionary politicians who can constantly reassure and set a vision. I'm not sure we're there at the moment. And I have, I've seen you make it work at a school in Hackney um, where the children were eating beetroot and leeks and all sorts of things that most children don't eat. And mine certainly didn't at that age. And I think it can work. But then I, I go back to Boris Johnson, who when he was prime minister, I remember saying he hadn't even bothered to read your report and they thought actually it was a bit unfair to have extra taxes for hardworking people. And he thought you were being a bit of a killjoy and why bother? And and he was pretty unhelpful. And uh, I don't feel that Theresa Coffey is particularly helpful either to your cause. And you're obviously deeply frustrated about DEFRA. When you say you need you know people with political skill and um, politicians who want to do something and have a vision, do you feel that any of these politicians are up to it at the moment? It's, I don't think we're living in the kind of, you know, uh, golden era of, of, of great politicians. No, I mean, to be fair to Boris, um, he, he was hijacked the morning the report was published, so he couldn't have read it. But, you know, he did, he, he is the populist politician and he actually went backwards. So when he almost died, he was going to restrict advertising and do all that stuff and then he pulled back from it. You know, Therese Coffey is actually everyone in DEFRA expected her to be Liz, a Trussite vision of this is all about growth and to hell with the environment. She's very focused on the environment and on climate change, the things that she obsessed about, but she's not particularly good at, at, at telling the story. And, um, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, government has definitely got much more serious. Uh, this, you know, if you think about long-term systemic problems, where there are multiple departments involved, you need to have a center that uh, that uh, can think about them and can take a longer term view and can corral the various departments and sectors of the state into action. And certainly, we now have a center that is much more functional than it was during the Truss and, and Johnson eras. But you know, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if we've got the the political skill. Mm. And is it just because politics is too short-termism that you can't actually tackle this issue because it's about long-term health of the country? It's about, you know, looking after the NHS in sort of 20 years' time when it's going to be keeling over with all these people with massive health problems and obesity. How do you get them to focus on this now? Because you say that actually this is worse than COVID, and yet they're not putting any of the effort they put into the pandemic. Well, you need the tragedy of Boris Johnson is that you need stability and a, and a good uh, and a 
good majority to be able to do long-term difficult things. If you look at some of the structural reforms that Blair made in the NHS, they were made on the back of ministers who didn't change much and um, and a big majority. And Johnson had that big majority, but he was completely chaotic and nothing long-term happened. And I think, you know, what I hope is that at the next election, whoever wins, and I keep telling people that it is a mistake, all, all the kind of NGOs say to me, well, what should we try to get into the Labour manifesto? I'm like, well, who knows? Who, you know, it may be Labour, it may be Tory, but what you want to try and do is create for both parties a kind of long-term sense that this is a proper structural problem, get things into their manifestos, and then I hope whoever wins wins by enough that actually they can they can be a bit longer term and aren't just constantly fighting the last fight on Twitter or the the news uh, the news kind of cycle of that day. Uh, and what we need is you as a food czar, obviously, for either party, don't we, to push it through. But um, I think I've done all I can nice. on the inside. I mean, I offer advice. If anyone wants to talk to me, I've, I've met with, you know, obviously extensively with um, the Tories beginning to speak to Labour and, and, you know, give advice. But you need, it's not, you don't need a czar, you need a strong centre. Yeah. So I've got lots of questions here from our online audience. I'm going to ask you a few of them. First is from Peter Sutton, who asks, what measures do you feel are needed to improve the prospects for farmers and growers in England? What what would you do that would actually transform their prospects with many of them leaving? So I think you need to do, first of all, you need to protect your borders. So you need to do trade deals that don't sell your farmers down the down the down the river. And then secondly, the transition is right. So it is right to begin to pay farmers for uh, environmental benefits, uh, biodiversity restoration, soil improvement, etc. We, I, I am, at the moment, that, and this is quite wonky, but at the moment, the, the default measure has been revenue foregone. And I worry that sometimes that is not going to be enough to make farmers... Uh, do the things that that we need them to do. So, for example, in the uplands, if you don't make it profitable enough for them to farm in a different way, they will just put the the economic incentive will be to put uh, more sheep up and uh, mm. up into the uplands because that will be the way they'll try and improve their profits. So it's kind of it's it, it's actually it's kind of on the headliney thing, but it needs very careful monitoring, changing. I think the government will make mistakes. They have to recognise they'll make mistakes, but be prepared to change and tweak and change and tweak those incentives. But, you know, I think it is possible to do. And Jackie Francis has asked whether or not you know whether other countries have food banks like us and and really what the opportunities and the setbacks are with food banks, because it is an opportunity in some ways to help people to eat better, isn't it? Um, yes, Germany has food banks. They're government-run. They're government um, and... The you know the argument against food banks is of course if you have food then people will take them. So the growth of food banks is, is, or the argument against has been about supply. I've been to quite a few food banks and I have I spent one really interesting afternoon signing people in. So you go through a questionnaire about why they're there, what they're doing, and the, the you know every story, all of the stories that you hear are 
not about food. They're about uh, people who have a benefit cap but don't want to leave the area they're living. They're about um, uh, mental ill health. They're about uh, domestic abuse. And the most effective food banks actually use the food as... um, as a as a way of trying to refer these people to different services to sort out their lives. So that's the one part of them, is that they should be more than just giving food. But the second thing, I think, is that, you know, we have, and this is completely outside my scope, we have one of the most unequal societies uh, in the Western world. And food banks and food poverty is simply a reflection of that inequality. And there are all sorts of things you can do in the food system to, to, in a small way, assuage that inequality. But fundamentally, we have to change that economic model. And uh, I've read a lot about that. I'm not an expert on it. And I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't, um, it's it's tricky. But, you know, if fundamentally, we have an economic model where too much is, our, our wealth is distributed too unevenly and therefore people too often are falling through the net. And just on a small scale, do you think that free school meals, which you've championed as has Marcus Rashford, why were the government so anti doing that? Because it seemed a very easy way to introduce children to better food and also to actually help families who are going to food banks. So it's really, I mean, that is a kind of deep ideological question. So there are things, I mean, this wasn't even universal free school meals, giving free school meals to everyone. And there are, there are very good reasons to do that. For, culturally, it's fantastic for schools. Uh, the, the Rashford campaign, where he campaigned for some of our recommendations, mm. was simply about um, extending support during the holidays, holiday activity and food programs, which the government did after quite a lot of campaigning put into place. And I, I, I genuinely think there is still a, a kind of ideological feeling that this is, this, you know, this, these people don't really need it. It's not, we should be doing, we should just getting more money into their pockets. I don't know. I do know that when, for the part two, one of the, one of the, the, the arguments against giving free school meals to everyone on universal credit was, um, well, you know, there are some people on universal credit who are on £40,000, which is true because the whole point of universal credit is to make sure that if someone has a disaster in their life, loses a job, they can get back on their own feet without being cast permanently into the, into the welfare system. But I asked DWP, where Therese Coffee was Secretary of State at the time, if I could have the data so that we could describe, we could segment and describe what people on universal credit look like. Because my instinct was going to be, well, my instinct is that if you put a face to something, it's much easier to understand, you know, to, 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 to understand what's going on. But also that actually that was quite, that would be quite a small effect. And there, I was going to get the, the data from the government department. Therese Coffee personally blocked it. So I don't know, it's a very weird, it's a very weird thing about you know, these are just bleeding heart liberals who aren't looking at the data, but then they don't seem to want to actually get into the data. It's it's peculiar. And we've got another one now. Actually, we've got quite a few from, um, which are the, the sort of diet drugs and the intervention and um, 
other strategies to cope with obesity. Um, uh, one person here has put you, uh, she's Saskia Sanderson has said that you highlighted how some people are more susceptible to overweight obesity in the current environment because they have this genetic tendency to behavioral traits like higher appetite and lower um, satiety. Uh, you also mentioned surgery and drugs in your book a lot. Uh, do you see any other roles for genetic information beyond these clinical drastic in interventions? What else can we do? For genetic would intervention? You, yes. Would you have, would you get, would you target those people for habit forming behavior? Yes. Yeah, so, so there's more, so the, the way I like to kind of think about this is that, you know, the food environment is very bad. We are in, you know, Imagine we're living in a desert. Life is hard. It's hard to live in that desert. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't teach people desert craft. So there are all sorts of ways that people can change their food environment, that they can shop. You know, there are, there are trials in Washington that we quote in the book of where you get people who have got very little money and are struggling from diet-related disease and you supplement their kind of the amount of vegetables they're able to buy and you teach them to cook and etc etc so we shouldn't the genetic thing doesn't mean that we should give up on all agency it just means that we should not blame ourselves what's going on and we should mm. you know but that doesn't mean you try and make it better one of the most powerful examples of of that self-blame i thought was um we 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 give an example of a um, bariatric surgeon, which is st stomach surgery, who the previous bariatric surgeries, the 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 gastric band which restricted the top of your stomach, left you feeling still hungry, and people got hungrier and hungrier and hungrier, and they'd melt Mars bars and drink melted ice cream because they felt ravenous, and they would come back to him, and not only would they not have lost weight, they would feel unbelievably guilty that that the that the they had had on the nhs this surgery and they had been too weak to deal with it if you look at the modern bariatric surgeries the gastric sleeve and the gastric bypass they both significantly reduce the production of of hunger hormones and one, and one increases the amount of satiety hormones and so those people do not have this problem and actually say, I've been like, like the people on Wagovia, I've been freed from, from this, this appetite. So we shouldn't blame people. We should recognize that it is difficult for people, but that doesn't mean that we need to give up. We should still be helping people try and live within their genetic um, restrictions as, as decent lives as they can. Yeah, and that's another question. Actually, someone said it's you know doesn't don't these drugs actually encourage people to eat less healthy food because actually they're so put off most food they just eat it occasionally and they'll snack on a few crisps. And how how do you do that? Do you get them to at the same time as taking these drugs? Do we try and eat, get them to eat more healthily? Is that the only way to do it? Well, interestingly, uh, uh, there's no data that I've seen on this, but the three people that I have spoken to all say that the things that they really don't like the idea of are cakes, donuts, etc. And uh, one of them who I was talking to today said that she now finds that she doesn't take the Wagovi um, every week now. She'll, she'll take it once every three weeks. But she finds that even when she's not taking it, she has fundamentally, she thinks, rewired her brain away from the bad stuff. So 
I don't know. We don't know yet if that is a a, a common uh, a common result of taking the drug, but it might be the case that not only does it make you feel less hungry, it directs you towards not towards the unhealthy stuff, but towards the healthier stuff. But we don't know. Do you worry about children with eating disorders and adults with eating disorders that this is going to be an issue that? Actually, we now have a society where we've got some people who are size zero and the others who are size 22, that, that we need to look at both aspects of that, that we need to be careful how well, we so, portray uh, uh, I don't... So eating disorders are largely uh, mental disorders to do with control. Hmm. And I think it... I, some people say, oh, you can't talk about overweight because... Uh, you might give someone an eating disorder. I, I just, I just don't think that's true. I think you have to how you talk about being overweight is something, but fundamentally, you can't say we can't try and fix this problem because we've got this problem. What is interesting, and I'm not a, an eating disorder expert, but there is a large amount of disquiet in the eating disorder world about appetite suppressing drugs, mm-hmm. uh, and that those will exacerbate people with control issues and enable people who really want to get their weight down to, uh, you know, really unhealthy levels of underweight that these drugs will, will enable that. But it's not, that's not an area where I am uh, an expert. So basically the book, you do, do come up, which people very often don't, with solutions, and they do seem quite obvious solutions. It's really tackling the companies and getting them involved isn't it it's getting everyone to help in a sort of not too nanny state away but in a way that like the japanese we can flip a whole country and yeah you, you, you know you we talk uh, i give the quote uh, the, the i talk about um andrew marr the um the politician that the tv presenter who was known as red andy when he was at university because he was a marxist and then he was talking at a book festival the other day about how he'd come to see how um actually the, we all swim in the free market, it gives us amazing uh, things that we love. You know, this uh, this chart behind me, which is a, a food map of France, all of those things uh, are different food specialities in France. There's no way that uh, that a, a planned economy could give, give me that. That's the free market at work, something I love, given to me by someone who loves it. Uh, but he says the problem with free markets is that they produce dirt and increase inequality. They produce externalities. And we fundamentally need to recognize that it takes government intervention to change the, the incentives in those markets, in those uh, sectors, so that they don't produce dirt. And the food industry is about to produce so much dirt, it brings down the NHS, and government must intervene. That won't be enough. So at the same time, when we talk about the power of love in the book, you need government interventions on the big levers, but you also need citizens who care and decide to improve the food at their local school, in their local, in their office, and so on and so forth. So you need uh, a bit of government intervention and a lot of uh, bottom-up care and love. And finally, you've talked about we throughout the book very carefully, and that is because it was written by both you and your wife. What was it like writing the book together? So... Uh, Mima, Jemima Lewis, uh, who writes a column in The Telegraph, she she edited for me, with me, the school food plan, the national food strategy. And then this book is finally, she managed to get her name, having done all this complete unpaid, thankless task. 
And what I would say is the most, I mean, it's, it's a joy to be able to talk to your wife about something. We've got three kids of that age where you're talking about all the time. So it's a joy. But what's interesting is the, <clears throat> she used to edit a magazine called The Week. Uh, so she's a very precise, which summarized things, very precise writer. And sometimes having someone who says, what do you really mean? And forces you to actually set out quite carefully what you actually mean by something will will make you realize you don't understand something. And I think that is the, that's been the most interesting thing about the process. And I think that if, you know, all government documents had an editor who was just saying, what do you actually mean? By someone who knew nothing about the topic, the world would be immeasurably improved. It's the best question you can ask is what do you actually mean? And we wrote it to try and, we wrote it to be exciting and uh, kind of gripping and to appeal to an intelligent 12-year-old. And I think that is, that is it's certainly appealing to a, an intelligent 12-year-old is what all government uh, work should, should uh, set out Fantastic. to do. And, it be and finally, what are you two it. having for supper tonight? I don't know. She's cooking. I'm, I'm going back. I'm looking forward to it. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much. And thank you very much to our audience and to Intelligence Squared. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced by Hannah Kay and edited by Tom Hall. We'd love to hear your feedback and what you think we should be talking about next, who we should have on and what our future debates should be. Send us an email or a voice note with your thoughts to podcasts at intelligencesquared.com. And if you'd like to hear more, attend some of our live events or peruse our 20 years of back catalogue featuring some of the world's great minds, then just head over to intelligencesquared.com. 